You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio 855am. It's Sunday the 18th of October and my name's James Whitmore. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this show is created, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. To find out more about this show or listen to any of our previous episodes, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue and you can follow our Facebook page, Out of the Blue Radio, for updates. I've got a fishy program for you today. A little later in the program, we're going to hear about a call for people to report sea dragon sightings. But first, we're going to hear about some fish that have made their homes in a fairly unexpected part of Melbourne. Earlier this year, I was being shown around the University of Melbourne, where I work, and I heard an amazing story about eels living in drains under the university, and I had to find out more. So I reached out to Zena Cumston, a Barkindji woman and research fellow at the Clean Air Urban Landscapes Hub at the University. She does a lot of work on Indigenous knowledge and was involved in a project called the Living Pavilion, which explored the flora and fauna of the land where the university sits before invasion. Zena confirmed that eels still find their way beneath the university and told me about their extraordinary migrations from Melbourne's rivers to the Coral Sea and all the way back again. Um, I guess a story that... Um some people think is true and other people think perhaps is an urban myth. Um, I'm in the camp of knowing that it's true. So um, I think a lot of people don't realise that most of Melbourne was um, a series of waterways and wetlands before um, invasion. And a lot of the waterways that existed here have now been covered over. And one of those actually ran right through the University of Melbourne Parkville campus. And it was known as, um, it had a few different names, but mostly known as the Bouvery Creek. Um, and most of the waterways that have been covered over still exist in some form underground. So at Melbourne University, from what I can understand, um, a lot of that water um, that went through has kind of been um, now, I guess, goes through underground drains um, because the water doesn't just go away. Um, it's been there for many, many, many thousands of years. The topography of the landscape means that water you know, continues to kind of land in those areas um, because of that topography. Um, so underneath Melbourne Uni, that creek um, still flows in some form, even though it's covered over in concrete. And one thing that I see is, as absolute proof of that waterway still existing is that just on the um, western side of the 1888 building at the Parkville campus, there's a lily pilly tree, um, which just happens to be my favourite tree um, on all of Parkville campus, and I'm a big tree lover. Mm. Um, this lily pilly tree is massive. It's grown to about, I would say, six to eight times the normal size of a lily pilly tree. And when I was doing my research for the Living Pavilion project, I was looking at the Parkville campus in terms of um, past, present and future and thinking about the landscapes um, before invasion. And I was also learning about all of the plants that the Kulin Nations people had to utilise across Victoria and thinking about the plants that would have been on the Parkville campus. And when I did my research on the lily pilly tree and realised how massive this tree was compared to normal lily pilly trees, I 
realised it was because the watercourse is underneath it. I did some more research and found that when lily-pilly trees happen to be near waterways, they become gargantuan, as this tree is. Mm. So we know that the Bouverie Street was actually a flowing creek um, and that runs out from Gate 8 at Parkville Campus all the way sort of down um, almost, yeah, I think to around the markets. Um, so the watercourse is still there. So a lot of people who work in the grounds um, realm of the University of Melbourne who I've spoken to have said that they um, know of people speaking about seeing eels in the drains when there's um, huge sort of water um, influxes of water like through big rains etc and eels are amazing at using um, waterways as highways Mm -hmm. and eels are a huge part of the biodiversity of Victoria and we also know that eels don't actually um, stop even when there's something in their way. Mm. So even if you put concrete over the top of them, their, um, their will to do what they need to do in terms of their continuation is incredible. And when we think about what eels themselves do to get back home to reproduce, it makes sense that they're still moving in those underground um, waterways across Melbourne now. It's so it's really remarkable and quite beautiful, really, to think that you know these creatures are still you know moving through Melbourne despite the city being built over the top of them. Can you just tell um, us a bit more about that life cycle and where they go to breed? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in this area and the research that I've done around eels has mainly been from a cultural perspective because I'm a Barkindji woman and my work at the university predominantly sits within the realm of looking at um, Aboriginal perspectives of biodiversity in urban areas. Um, That's kind of the lens that I've applied to my learnings. So there are many people who know a lot more about eels, but from my understanding, um, eels, when when they reach maturity and are ready to to reproduce, which I think is between 14 and 20 years old, but I could be completely wrong. Um, I'm just going from my memory here from things that I've been reading to write, the narratives that I write about biodiversity. Um, They travel a really long way. So they go, um, I think it's between 4,000 and 5,000 kilometres from different parts of Victoria, right up the east coast of Australia. Um, And they... Don't, their, their stomachs apparently kind of um, almost, they contract in a way that they almost aren't there anymore. They don't eat at all. So by the time they get this 4,000, 5,000 kilometres away, they are pretty much just um, reproductive organs and, you know, skin and bone. Um, and they um, have their babies. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Um, I think each year yeah, produces like thousands. And then, of course, many of them don't survive. But they travel back the the, um, the glass eels, I think they're called, which is, um, you know, when they're still really tiny. They travel back along um, the waterways, um, down along on the in the current, um, back to where they came from, which is incredible to think mm. that a lot of these eels came from creeks in different parts of um, Victoria and actually know how to make their way back um, to the place that their parents have come from. Truly extraordinary. So could you tell us a bit more about what eels mean to Indigenous culture? You mentioned you're a Bakunji woman, um, but I was also thinking of the budgebeam eel traps found out um, in Western Victoria and things like that. Yeah, so um, on my country, so I'm Barkindji, so I'm from Western New South Wales, 
and on my country we don't have um, eels and we don't have um, eel practice. Um, but since living in Melbourne, I've become quite fascinated with it because I know the Wadjuri people here in Melbourne. It was a big part of their um, their cultural lives and um, their subsistence. And as you say, um, I think you know. For Gunditjmara people, eels are central to so much of their cultural world um, and their ability to survive and to thrive for such a long period of time. But if we just sort of look at the basics of eels, um, they're very high in lipids and, and good fats um, and protein and they're actually not too difficult to catch compared to, um, I guess, lots of other animals. So it kind of makes sense that they've been a really important part of the diet who've, of, for people who've lived along waterways. So there's many different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups across Australia for whom eels would be important. Um, I guess my research for the Living Pavilion allowed me to understand a bit more about Wadjuri people and and um, how they sort of practised um, their culture with eels. So I know that... Um, there's a whole season in the Wurundjeri seasons that um, is called Eok season, which is their word for eel. Um, and at that time, um, obviously, it was when the eels were moving and when they were um, at their best for eating, so very um, fat. And I learnt that when the silver wattle, which is a beautiful yellow flower, which if you walk along any of the waterways in Melbourne, you'll see this beautiful um, silver wattle. Um, I think it started blooming now and it starts to drop um, into the Birrarung in what the Wurundjeri people call eel season, mm -hmm. eel season. And there's a grub in that flower from what I've been able to understand um, that the eels eat and it makes them fat, which wow. is a great time to catch them. Yeah, so like Gunditjmara people, from what I understand, Wurundjeri people also um, use nets, but they also use spears to catch eels. And, of course, we know, and, you know, it's a fascinating thing to learn about if you really want to start understanding the complexity of Aboriginal culture, to learn about the whole um, Butch Bim aquaculture system is, like, mind-blowing. I was really lucky when I was at uni. Um, I was able to go with... Um, Professor Ed McNiven out onto Butchbin country and do an excavation and we learnt a lot from Gunditjmara people um, about their culture associated with eels and the aquaculture there which we know is those systems, that aquaculture system is the oldest in the world. It is more than 6,500 years old and it has been continuously used. Gunditjmara mob, no matter what interventions have happened on their country and invasion and all of the terrible things that happened, they never stopped using um, that those aquaculture systems so it's it's the longest in continuous use and I think if people do want to learn about um, eels I mean obviously I'm telling you about Wurundjeri and Gunditjmara people's um, use of eels but really as a Barkindji woman I know nothing mm. um, but there's lots of opportunities for people to learn from traditional owners and I think that's the very best way and it's wonderful that Butchbim is now, you know, World Heritage listed and, and that's got a listing just on its cultural values and so much of those cultural values revolve around their um, interaction with eels. Mm. So, um, yeah, if anyone is wanting to learn more, they have an amazing cultural centre out there and all sorts of tours and I can't recommend it highly enough because I feel so privileged that I was I was able to learn um, from Gunditjmara mob when I was at uni, when I did the arch, um, archaeology subject. 
And as far as in Melbourne, um, the Bolombolan um, Billabong, and it was kind of a chain of um, Billabongs, was a really important place for Wadjuri people um, in terms of their ealing. So um, there was a great article in the Guardian recently with Uncle Dave Wanden um, and Michael Sean Fletcher, who's a Wadjuri. Um, academic at the University of Melbourne and they were doing work looking at um, cultural practices around the Bolombolan Swamp and uncovering some of those histories. But we know that people used to go there um, during eel season and have massive feeds and huge get-togethers with thousands of people and there was so much readily available food, i.e. eels, mm. that people stayed for weeks and weeks of cultural business. Mm. So you've been working on this thing called the Living Pavilion at the university, which is telling stories about some of the environment and wildlife and things that were present before invasion. Um, where would you like to see this work go? Yeah, so that was actually a project that was, um, it sort of came to fruition in May of 2019 and it was just for about two and a half weeks. And um, we... Um, a whole group of researchers, including myself, transformed just a small part of the Parkville campus. So we told a lot of stories through signage um, and also through the installation of 40,000 Kulin Nation plants, that is plants that are important to, to Aboriginal peoples of the wider sort of Victorian area. Um, and I guess it, it allowed a portal for people to understand the breadth and depth of our knowledges um, and not just plant use in terms of little things that we sometimes hear about in terms of nutrition and, and um, medicines, but also people understanding the really complex technologies that we've been able to um, innovate and, and make um, using plants. So I guess where I'd really like to see this work going is that more often in urban landscapes, I really want people to have the opportunity to understand about the, the deep histories of place that exist everywhere that have been covered over by things like concrete. And those deep histories are still there. Um, we as Aboriginal people know so many of our stories. There's a really da damaging narrative, um, I think, that I hear a lot, um, that in southeastern Australia a lot of our culture is lost. And I've even been working with young Aboriginal people doing workshops in schools. And a lot of the students have really shocked me because um, there's been comments like, why did Aboriginal people die out? We didn't die out um, there's no place in Australia, whether urban or or um, out, you know, in the country, that is not spoken for. Every place in Australia is an Aboriginal and/or Torres Strait Islander place, and I think that the greater kind of population seems to want to know more about these stories and about the ways in which we've interacted with landscapes, and that's especially so because we are experiencing such um, a tumultuous time in terms of the pressures of what's happening with climate change um, and environmental things that are happening. I think more and more people are understanding that there's a lot of knowledge that um, perhaps in some areas is sleeping but hasn't been resourced in a way that allows it to be reinvigorated. It's not that our culture's dead. It certainly is not. Um, it's more that in some areas we need to apply resources to allow um, Aboriginal people to um, reinvigorate cultural practice. And you can really see that with things like the Fire Sticks Alliance, mm. who are doing a lot of work to get people to understand cultural burning and um, land management from that lens. So I'd just like to see um, more opportunities for everyone to learn 
um, more about the histories of place and to be able to interact with and talk with us as Aboriginal people and see that we are very much in the now. We are still caring for country and there's lots of our narratives which are incredibly important to be applied to the ways that we are managing landscapes today. That was Zena Cumston, a Barkindji woman and research fellow at the University of Melbourne with that amazing story. After the break, we're going to be talking about sea dragons. But before that, here's a song. This is Alinta with Red. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. I bled when they spoke in red light when I woke. Told universe you will never see me broke. I bled when they spoke in red light when I woke. Told universe you will never see me broke. I bled when they spoke in red light when I woke. Told universe you will never see me broke.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Recently, marine scientists have put out a call for people to report sea dragon sightings off the coast of southern Australia. Sea dragons are definitely one of my favourite fish, but we actually don't know very much about them. I spoke to Dr. Nerida Wilson, a senior research scientist at the WA Museum, to find out how we can help. So Nerida, you're involved in a new project called Sea Dragon Search. Can you tell us a bit about that? Set up Sea Dragon Search um, in order to understand sea dragon populations better. So at the moment, we don't really understand if they're declining in numbers or if they're stable and they're fine or a whole lot of other information that we might need to conserve them better. And so um, what we've done is set up a project where people can just um, submit their photographs of sea dragons, ones they've just taken either diving or snorkeling or maybe even one that washed up on the beach. Um, and we use those photographs um, and look at them and match them to dragons through time. So we can try and match photographs of individual dragons in the database. This allows us to estimate things like lifespan and, and just the numbers that are in the population. So it, it's amazing to sort of just take a, a snapshot, I suppose, that might have been taken just because they were beautiful, and to convert it into the kind of data we need to conserve the species. That's very cool. So what? So tell me about sea dragons. It sounds like they're... You know, I mean, they're quite famous, but are they a bit mysterious? <laughs> they're kind of that, uh, you know, mysterious creature in your own backyard. So it's kind of funny because I, I grew up diving in Melbourne and, and seeing them and just thinking, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> nice fish. <laughs> and it wasn't until much later when I was living, you know, in other countries that I sort of realised how special they were. Mm. So it's nice to have that sort of viewpoint. Um, so, yeah, we, we do see them, Um frequently and people might encounter them washed up on beaches but there, there are certain things we don't know about them like um, you know how long they live for instance or how many times a year they reproduce or maybe exactly when they reproduce and if that's different in different populations so maybe one's in cold water and one's in warm water you know have those things happening at different times and so all that information is really important for management purposes. And uh, I heard that there's now a third species of sea dragon recently discovered. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so when we first started um, looking at sea dragons, we were interested in understanding the genetic connectivity between populations because that can tell us lots of things about how much immigration is going on. And as part of that work, we came across a sample that was really different to all the others. And it led us down a, a little path of research to discover what we now know is the ruby sea dragon. So that was super exciting. And, and of course, you never set out to discover a new species of sea dragon. It just sort of happens along the way of some other project. So, yeah, it was a lovely, a lovely little outcome. Yeah, they look quite strange. I was watching videos of them earlier today. Um, it's... Uh... Yeah, kind of, it's strange to see a sea dragon without all the weedy appendages, I guess. That's right. So we think that uh, really sea dragons don't have those sort of flappy bits that, that help the shallow species camouflage in weeds because they don't actually hang around in algal um, beds. So they're, they're in deeper water and they tend to um, hang out in sponge gardens and so they don't really need those flappy bits to blend in. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, you know, sea dragons are... Uh, even though they're familiar to us here in Australia, they're quite unique. Where, where, where are they found around the southern coast of Australia? What sort of habitats do they like to live in? Yeah, so the two species that we find in shallow waters 
Um, the first one is known as the common or the weedy sea dragon, and that's the one that's um, kind of a bit more brown, but it has yellow dots on it. And that's found pretty much from Geraldton all around the southern part of the country, around Tasmania and up to just, just past Sydney. Um, and the leafy sea dragon, which is the one that's a bit more yellow with a bit more camouflage leafy bits on it, um, that's found in southern Western Australia and also in South Australia, but doesn't come across to um, Victoria or Tasmania um, pretty much. So this new program is you, you're asking people to send photos in, and then I read that it involves uh, artificial intelligence. What's going on there? Yeah, so when we first noticed that sea dragon faces looked distinct and they might be sort of unique to an individual, we were just comparing a couple of photographs in one place. So we used it as a technique so we wouldn't resample animals when we were doing our genetics work. But, you know, you can imagine if you're sort of comparing one photograph against all of the other photographs in that area, um, that's manageable one time. <laughs> and once you start scaling up, across their whole range, so all of those places around southern Australia and through time because we can also use photographs that are taken now and in the future but also ones that were taken previously so we can go back in time as well. And so there's just two comparisons for us to um, keep on top of. So um, this project's been a long long time cooking and uh, it was really wonderful to um, connect with some software developers that had created um, uh, tools where we could do this kind of project. So it's the same software that's used for matching manta ray spots and humpback flukes and those kinds of things. And here we've just adapted it to work for sea dragons. And so the uh, computer vision model will be able to pull um, out the part of the photograph that is the sea dragon from the background. And that's, that's actually not trivial because these animals are super camouflaged. So um, it's actually really difficult to do that. And then it will compare the sort of dot and pattern um, on the faces of those sea dragons to all of the other ones in the database. So it will basically do all the comparisons for us and say, hey, look at the top 12 matches. And then a human eye will go in and then check and verify because human eyes are pretty good at doing that. But the, the computer algorithm just helps us do it really effectively and efficiently. So, yeah, super, super nice to have that technology behind us. It's a bit like uh, Face ID for sea dragons. Will they be able to open? <laughs> will they be able to open phones with it? <laughs> yeah, it is exactly what it is. But yes, if they take over the phones, we're <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, how can people get involved with this program? So, anyone that wants to learn about sea dragons or research that's going on and get involved in this program can go to our website, which is seadragonsearch.org. And on that page is all that information, but there's also a participate button, and that's the one that will take you to a, a data portal if you have a photograph to upload. And so the main thing that we need is for the photograph to be um, of the, the side of the sea dragon. So looking head on is, is not good. We need to see that side of the face. And so we need to know when you took the photo and where you took the photo. And that's pretty much it. And it's a fairly simple... Um, process of uploading it and then we get back to you with um, emails telling you whether it's a, a brand new sea dragon individual for the project or if it's 
if we find it again, we'll let you know where somebody else has found it. Um, so we'll, we'll keep in touch about those sorts of things as well. Um, can you tell us a bit about all the work that's gone on behind the scenes and all the people who are involved in this project? Yeah, sure. It's, it's certainly a project that's too large for you know one one person to do. And so we've really been able to connect with a whole range of people who have been um, already researching sea dragons or community groups that are already involved in looking out for their local sea dragons and then connecting everyone into one network um, all coming together to, to get the data we need. So it's, it's really wonderful. I think it's, it's a great example of how people that care can all plug in and, and help find um, the data that we need to, to save the species. It's really important. That was Dr. Nerida Wilson from the Western Australian Museum. You can find out more about Sea Dragon Search at seadragonsearch.org. And that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, you can go to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Sadana